All right, let's pray before we begin this evening. Father, we thank you that your name is Jehovah Jireh. Everything we need. Thank you, Father, you are more than enough for, for all the needs that we have. Father, you're able to do far more exceeding abundantly over all that we think and desire, all that we want in the innermost part of our being. And Father, I thank you, you are not a disappointment. You are the God of fullness for us. And Father, I thank you for the fullness that's in your word. Father, that we can come to your word and study it. Father, in this shallow, pappy day in which we live, we do thank you that still there's the hunger for the word of God. Father, I know that there are some Christian conferences where you never open your Bible. Father, where the Word of God is never taught. And yet, Father, they seem satisfied with that. And yet, Father, we know that you long for people who will meditate in your Word. And Father, I pray that this afternoon, Father, we should learn more about you and about your Word. That our faith should be uh, stabilized. That we should know that it's underpinned with the solid reality of the truth that you've revealed. And that, Father, we should, in this strengthened way, go out and tell this nation what it needs to hear, the very living word of God. Father, I do pray you'll raise up Bible teachers in this land, men and women, Father, who will be unashamed of the wonderful truths that are found in your word, and that, Father, wherever they go, they will tell people of the truth of the word of God. I pray, Father, that all of us might gossip the gospel, hallelujah, and gossip the truth to the people that we meet. Oh, Father, men and women in this land who are eager to pass on the truth that they've received from your word. Father, please just bless us tonight as we come to difficult passages in the word of God. And may we learn many things. In Jesus' name, I would ask it. Come and anoint us by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Well, tonight we're in the very happy position where we have only one of the five basic questions that I asked in the first study of this series left to cover. And the fifth question, and I'm going to deal with it tonight, is this. What about the problem passages? What about the apparent contradictions in the Word of God? By the way, I would remind you all that this is a basic course that we're going through. A basic Bible course. And of course, because of that, there are many things that I could have covered in some depth, and I haven't done so. For example, if I ever do an advanced course in the Word of God, instead of just mentioning the church councils, as I did this morning, we'll actually discuss what went on at each of those church councils, and we'll talk about the characters who took part in it, and what the discussion was about, and so on, and I'll go right through all the problem books and tell you why they were a problem, and so on. But I think detail like that would so weigh down a basic Bible course that really we'd never get on to anything else. And so I hope that these studies, first of all, um, answer a lot of questions as far as you're concerned, but secondly, I hope that they'll give you the appetite to go and search out these matters yourself. That's what I hope, so that in fact you will go to the library or ask people and say, look, I'd like to find out what happened at these councils, or I'd like to find out more about the canon of Scripture, or whatever. And then to go away and research it will be your joy. Praise God. By the way, I mean, I've missed all sorts of things. Do you know I haven't even mentioned the Septuagint version of the Bible? Do you know 
that uh, around the Mediterranean, uh, many of the empire builders, you know, the great conquerors of the ancient world, they were so impressed by the Jews that they used to take the Jews everywhere with them. And Alexander the Great was one, and he thought the Jews were such wonderful administrators, he wanted every city to have a Jewish administrator in it. And he is the man who, first of all, spread the Jews around the Mediterranean. And there was one group of Jews in Alexandria who forgot how to speak Hebrew. So they asked in 280 BC for a translation of the Old Testament to be made into Greek. And in fact, a group of 72 men started translating the whole of the Old Testament into Greek, and that's called the Septuagint version of the Bible. It means the 70, you see? And that's a very useful version of the Old Testament and helps us. Well, you see, I've hardly mentioned that. But there are all sorts of other things I could have included. But I've tried my best not to bog us down with detail, but to cover the Word of God in a way that is detailed enough, but without finding it too mind-boggling. All right? So I hope by this time you really do know that the Bible you have in your hand is the original Bible that Moses wrote, that Jeremiah wrote, that Ezekiel wrote, that Daniel wrote, all right, that Paul wrote, and so on, and that this may have been written by human authors, but actually it is the God-breathed Word of God. God is the author of this book, and this is his mind and his wisdom to our generation and to us as individuals. Well, praise the Lord. However, you'll always meet the wise guy who say, how can you believe the Bible? It's so full of contradictions. Now, one word of warning immediately. Some people have very big mouths, but very small brains. <laughs> and some people have learnt phrases, you know, like, the Bible's full of contradictions. Now, before you get on the defensive and the hackles rise at the back of your neck and so on, why don't you just say, oh, is it? Tell me ten. I mean, if it's full of contradictions, they should be able to tell you ten, shouldn't they? Ten's not many. If it's full of contradictions, if they said, oh, there are one or two, then they might find it hard to remember what the one or two were. But if it's full of contradictions, just say, well, write out ten and, and show them to me. You'll find that most people actually will say, oh, well, um, I think I heard of one, um, oh, what was it? The minute you challenge them, they withdraw, you see. Some people can remember just one right? And it's, it's either a fairly obscure one or a well-known one like Judas or something that I'll be dealing with that later on, you see. But um, always call their bluff, first of all. But be careful, because they might actually be able to name 10, all right? Again, if you're in that position, I hope you've done enough homework to be able to answer most of them. If there's one you can't answer, don't bluff your way through. They'll see you're bluffing, but rather say, look, I've never heard of that one before. Can I take it away and pray about it and work with it, you see, and then I'll be back to you on that particular issue. And by the way, I remember when I was convinced that this Bible was the Word of God, I actually wrote a list of ten contradictions in the Bible, and then I said, well, Lord, I know this Bible really is the inspired Word of God, that it's infallible and inerrant. Lord, please will you show me what's happened with these scriptures? And I prayed and prayed and prayed about it, and it was God who then opened up my mind to understand the scriptures. Now obviously we only have one session on this and I'm afraid there are certain problems that I won't have time to cover, but what I've tried to do is to pick certain problem passages to show the principles. 
You see, there are certain principles which, if you know, you can find, oh, well, this one fits into that type of principle, and you'll understand what the resolution is of that particular problem. May I say, theological problems are another issue. I'm interested in the problems connected with the text of the Bible in this particular time. All right? So I'm dealing with about 18 of them uh, in the session today. So I hope I cover your favorite. By the way, isn't it lovely that atheists are so ignorant about the Bible? Do you know, if I was an atheist and I know what I know now, well, I know you'll say I wouldn't be an atheist, but say I were an atheist, do you know, I could actually cause most Christians to run to the nearest mental hospital, right? I could say, oh, yeah, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And the tragedy today is there is such a shallow understanding of the Word of God that the majority of Christians cannot answer even the simplest contradictions or apparent contradictions that are pointed out in the Word of God. So really, today is an important tape because I hope that from it you'll learn that you really can stand on the Word of God and not bluff your way out. You can give answers to the things they'll throw against you. All right, let me begin with one that you may have come across and may not have come across. Occasionally, people who are rather against the book of Genesis tend to say something like this, well, there is a contradiction between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And they say, if you read them carefully, you'll find they give two entirely different versions of creation. Has anyone here ever come across someone who says that? Yes, you find this occasionally. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, and we'll see what they're saying. Right? In Genesis 1, he's gone through the seven days and seven nights, the six days and six nights of creation, and then the seventh on which he rested. And in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 3, he completes it. The heaven and the earth were finished. The seventh day, God ended his work. God blessed the seventh day. Then in verse 4, he begins, apparently, another story. And he begins talking about the earth again. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground and so it goes on. And then in verse 7, he comes immediately to the creation of man. And so they say, ah, well, you see, there's a contradiction here. I mean, Genesis 1 says one thing, then you go to Genesis 2 and it says something else. Now, can I say immediately, when you meet such a person as that, actually, there is no contradiction between Genesis 1 and 2, but it's written in the typical Hebrew form. And the trouble with we Westerners is, we think the way we do things is the way everyone does everything. But do you know the Hebrews write books in an entirely different way from Westerners? Now, a Westerner does this. A Westerner starts off the story. He begins at the beginning. And he gradually builds it through. He does it chronologically. On Monday, this happened. On Tuesday, this happened. On Wednesday, this happened. On Thursday, this happened. On Friday, this happened. And he gradually builds it up. In 1970, this happened. 1971, this happened. 1972, this happened. And we think that that's the way the Hebrews thought. But it's not. The Hebrew writers wrote not chronologically. They wrote logically. And a Hebrew writer, very often, would tell you the whole story in the first chapter. Right? He covers the whole plot and everything, the resolution to it, in the first chapter. And the rest of the book, he goes back and he fills in the details that you want to know. 
The Jews often, for example, would begin telling a story, and then they'd mention a certain character, and you know what they'd do? They'd forget the rest of the story, and they'd go and tell you all the details of this character, what he did in the future, and then in the next chapter, they'd come back to where they left off. You see? And so it's written in an entirely different manner. By the way, the nearest I can get to it is this. This is how newspaper writers write their reports in the newspaper. Do you know, if a newspaper writer wrote his report, a journalist wrote his report the way that novelists write, hardly anyone would read the newspapers. It would take so long to get to the main point. Well, the story opens at 2 o'clock on the Tuesday morning. It was a very quiet Tuesday morning, and uh, there was nothing going on at all. And then a van pulled up outside the shop, right? There were two men in the van, and they sat there for several hours. And by the time you've read all of this, you're thinking, what on earth goes on? Finally, it says at 9 o'clock, they then went into the bank and they held up the bank. Well, that's not the way journalists write. What they say is there was a bank raid at 9 o'clock yesterday morning. The van had been parked there from 2 o'clock that morning. Do you see what I mean? There's no chronology in that. It's a logical order they actually follow. Now, the Bible's the same. And by the way, all you've got in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is this. In Genesis chapter 1, the writer tells you everything that happened, right? He covers the whole story in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 2, he then goes back and he fills in the details, right? And he picks any details that he wants to fill in. You'll find the same order is given actually in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 6, the whole of the tribulation is covered. He tells you what this tribulation is about, and then beginning in chapter 7, he goes back and he starts filling in the details. This is typical ancient form, you see? And by the way, people who are Jewish think that Bible critics who take this type of line are pathetic individuals, that they're so stereotyped, so lacking in pliability, they can't even see that not everyone writes the way they write. Oh, and I got a lovely quotation from a chap called Professor Kaufman, and he's writing about Bible critics right? He doesn't like Bible critics, especially Western Bible critics. This is what he says. Scholars, and he doesn't mean that as a nice term, right? Scholars, so-called. Scholars follow the well-trodden paths and follow their tradition. In other words, they can't break out of the mold they're in. They base their examination of the biblical text on the rules of Latin composition. That's Western composition, the way we write. They start from the assumption that the true and original text must be consistent, and if it's not consistent, it must be corrected by scissors and paste work. And they cut it about, cut this bit out here and stick a bit in here, and they want to cut the Bible about. The biblical storyteller must have a schema. That's what they insist on. He doesn't have to, by the way, but he must. That's what the Bible critic says. He must keep in sequence... He is not allowed to repeat himself ever, right? He's forbidden to retrace his steps and so on. The Bible critic won't let him. Scholars discover everywhere duplications, contradictions, derangement of sequence, and they amend. Come along, well, the Bible's wrong here. It ought to say this, it ought to say that. This is in the wrong order, and so it goes. According to them, the text has been tampered with by first, second, and third hands. Right? People have messed about with the text of the Bible. Most of whom, they assume, were complete fools and botchers. In other words, they've messed it about and left such a mess that any old fool can see that it shouldn't have been read like that. It does not occur to the scholars 
that the biblical authors wrote in an entirely different way and not according to the schema of a Latin composition. And so, hear, hear, say I. Praise God. And by the way, if you ever study the books of Joshua and Judges, if you think they're done in chronological sequence, you're in a mess immediately. They're not. They're done in logical sequence. Do you see? There is no contradiction between Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2 at all. This is the way the Hebrews wrote. So that deals with that category of criticism. And you watch people who start criticizing the Bible like that. I'll give you an example, and this leads us on to a second uh, problem. We're often asked the question, where did Cain get his wife from? Have you ever heard that little problem? Now, what do they do? Well, they start with Adam and Eve. They come through to Genesis chapter 4, right? And here you've got it. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. Then it goes on to talk about Abel. Do you remember that? Then you go through the whole history of Cain and Abel, and suddenly it says in verse 17, and Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And they say, ha, 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 ha. (laughs) All you've got in the text is Cain and Abel. Where did he get his wife if Adam and Eve were the only people on the earth? Well, just go on to Genesis chapter 5 a minute. In verse 3, it says this, And Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years. He begat sons and daughters, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Now, listen to the biblical order. What the biblical author has done is this. He talks about Cain and Abel, and then he forgets the rest of history, and he tells you the rest of the story of Cain and Abel. But as Cain and Abel are going on, what are Adam and Eve doing? Are they sitting by saying, oh, we just let the story of Cain and Abel come to an end, and uh, eventually then we'll think about what we should do next? Of course they weren't. They were busy having other children at the time. Do you see? Just because the Bible happens to concentrate on Cain and Abel, it doesn't mean nothing else was happening. And in fact, chapter 5 goes back to the story of Adam and Eve, and it tells you this, they had sons and daughters. And we don't know how many sons and daughters they had, but I'll tell you, it was an awful lot. An awful lot. On the earth, at the time of Cain and Abel, there were sons and daughters being born to Adam and Eve constantly. And in these days, the only person you could marry was one of your sisters, or one of your brothers, if you're female. And do you know the order at the beginning of creation was you married your sister or your brother? And by the way, even up to Abraham's day, do you remember, he married his half-sister, who was called Sarah. That was permitted. It was only stopped when the law was given after the Exodus. And the law then said that you must not marry your brother or your sister. All right? It was stopped at a certain time. By the way, there's a very good genetic reason why this is so. Adam was created as a sort of genetic soup. Remember this, that every type of human being on the face of the earth today has come from Adam and Eve. So in Adam and Eve, there were the Negroes, the Japanese, the Mongols, the Aztecs, the Red Indians, the Swedes, the Germans, the British, the Welsh were in there somewhere. Right? They were all in Adam and Eve. They were such a genetic soup that there was no problem in intermarrying. But once the different strains had come out, then the intermarrying actually stopped. 
And do you know, in our day, by the way, you are forbidden to marry your sister or your brother. And if you do, you will soon find that within generations, madness and all sorts of weaknesses would start coming into the family. Do you know, Julius Caesar's family was very intermarried. You know, I mean, you, they all married one another. The line is so complicated, really. You find people who are cousins and uncles and sisters, and, and they're all the same people. It's very complicated. But the madness that came into the Roman Caesars was largely because of this intermarrying. God allowed Adam and Eve's children to intermarry because they were so genetically varied. But the minute the different strains had come out and the families had come out, then God said, stop. And it wasn't permitted after the law. So who did Cain marry while he married his own sister? It's perfectly ordinary and perfectly normal, all right? So again, you see, it's logical order. Because we try and put chronological order into this, we run into problems. It's logical order, not chronological. Praise the Lord. So there's your answer in Genesis 5 and verse 4. Loads and loads of sons and daughters. All right, let's move on now to Numbers 25 and verse 9. Numbers 25 and verse 9. And here, the children of Israel are being cursed for their sinfulness. And verse 7 onwards, uh, rather interesting. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, this is Numbers 25, verse 7, he rose up from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And God had cursed the people by sending a plague among them. Now in verse 9, we find the number of people who died from the plague. And those that died in the plague were 24,000. Now, so far, so good. The problem is that if you then turn to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 8, it gives a different total. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this is referring back to that incident. I'll read verse 7. It says here in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 7 and 8, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day twenty and three thousand or three and twenty thousand. Now, if you check those two, you'll find it's a thousand out. Have you noticed that? One says that twenty-four thousand died. The other says that twenty-three thousand died, doesn't it? Oh, now we have a problem here. In fact, however, this problem is solved when you read the text very carefully. Read verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10 again. It doesn't actually say that the total number was 23,000. What it says is, and fell in one day 23,000. And here you have one of those examples where an apparent contradiction is there to give you more details. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, we learn that in one day 23,000 died. In Numbers 25, we learn that the total number who died were 24,000. There's no contradiction. Some of them obviously died the day after. One gives the total number. One tells you of the day that judgment fell and 23,000 died. By the way, even if that weren't the case, do you know, figures sometimes can be given in generalities, can't they, without actually being called a liar? I mean, for example, if I asked you how much you earn, and you say, oh, I earn 5,000 pounds, right? Yeah, 5,000 pounds. That's how much I earn. 
And then I go and check your payslip, and I find you earn not £5,000, but £5,025. What am I going to say? Oh, don't trust him. He's a complete liar. I asked him how much he earned. He said definitely he earned £5,000. I find now he earns £5,025. Now, is the chap being a liar? No, he's not. He's giving you a general figure. You might say, well, how long did Roger speak this morning? Well, he spoke for one hour and 20 minutes. Well, that just shows what a liar you are. It was one hour and 17 and a half minutes. Do you see, generalities don't actually mean that you are a liar. In this case, however, it's not a generality. Actually, 23,000 died in one day. 24 was the total figure. Don't let anyone throw that one at you. They haven't read the text closely enough. All right? And isn't it lovely, by the way, an apparent contradiction actually gives you more information at this point. All right, let's go on to another one. And this is a different type again. In 1 Samuel 13, I'm gradually working through the Bible. We'll come to the New Testament in just a minute. In 1 Samuel 13, you have a very strange verse in verse 1. And by the way, if your Bible was being real, it would actually leave some dot, dot, dots in here, right? This is a very difficult little verse indeed. We know from the book of Acts that Saul reigned 40 years. Look what this verse says. And it is a complicated verse in the Hebrew. Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose him 3,000 men of Israel. And you might think, well, where's the problem there? The problem is that actually it's written in the form that was normally written about the kings, and it normally told you the total number of years that he reigned. And here it says he reigned one year. Well, he didn't reign one year. He reigned 40 years. So what's this about, you see? Well, there are two possible answers. May I say, on the chronology tapes, I give one answer to this, and it's one that we'll see a little later on in tonight's study. Uh, do you know Saul was a king who was a born-again man who really served the Lord for about a year and then got terribly out of fellowship for 39 years, right? That was the history of Saul. With God one year, out of fellowship for 39. And it might just be that here God is saying that I only recognize one year of his reign. I don't look at the other 39 when he was out of fellowship. That might be one explanation. However, it's generally reckoned that actually some letters have been missed out in the text here. The scrolls were used often, and sometimes they used to get bent, and sometimes you used to find there was a hole or something had been worn away, and occasionally you couldn't make out the letter. And rather than copy something and guess at it, they would actually leave a little gap here. And some people reckon that this ought to read something like this. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign. And he reigned blank and two years over Israel. That's what they generally reckon. And you might say, oh, but they've missed out a word. Do you know they haven't missed out a word? Do you know that the Hebrews used to actually count with their alphabet? And all that's been missed out here is one alphabetic figure, you see? I mean, say, for example, it should say Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign. The only letter that's been missed out is the Hebrew letter Mem, right? It's like missing an M out, for example. And that's all that's been missed out here. All right? Well, there is actually part of the text that I'd love to get hold of just to correct it. But do you see something here? No point of doctrine is destroyed because there are two little letters missed out there. I mean, there's no point saying, oh, well, the whole of Christian doctrine falls to the ground because of that. Nothing falls to the ground because of it. We get the information from other passages in the Bible anyway. 
you see. And there are certain places in the Bible, and we'll see a few more later on, where the occasional letter has been missed out. But it's so obvious, and it's been corrected in another particular uh, portion. You see? So there's one place where we do have a problem. Oh, if you're ever praying about the text of the Bible, do pray about this little verse, right? It will be lovely to see what the original actually said. All right, so there's a, a problem. And here we have to say, yes, there is a problem. It may be that two little letters have been missed out. They don't affect doctrine at all. All right, let's move on to another. 2 Samuel 21, verse 19. And when I do my tape on giants, we'll be dealing with this in some detail, right? Which I'm looking forward to. Now, the good old uh, King James Version, you know, fills in things. Do you know that? That if there's something missing, it often puts it in, but it always puts it in italics so that we know. And here in the middle of verse 19, you'll find a few words written in italics, and that means they're not found in the Hebrew. Look what it says, verse 19. And there was again a battle in Gob with the Philistines, where Elhanan, the son of Jareh Oregim, a Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. There it is. And if you notice, the words the brother of have been added. And how it really reads is this. A Bethlehemite slew Goliath the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, actually, you just have to read that, and you know there's something wrong there immediately, don't you? Because, of course, 1 Samuel 17 deals with the fact that David slew Goliath. Here, however, another chap is said to slay Goliath. Now, there's a problem there. And actually, what's been missed out is one word in this particular thing. Oh, is that a problem? No, it's not a problem. Do you know why? Because Chronicles corrects it. And if you keep your finger in the place and turn to 1 Chronicles 20, 1 Chronicles... Chapter 20 and verse 5, here you've got it. And by the way, I think it's lovely that God seems to have duplicated certain verses where there might have been a problem. And verse 5, and there was war again with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jair, slew Lami, the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. Isn't that lovely? Praise the Lord. And it may be, you know, that God allowed one word to fall out of there so that you'd actually go back and learn the name of Goliath's brother. Do you know that Goliath actually had four brothers? There were five in the family. And isn't it wonderful that David picked up five stones? You read the story. Actually picked up five stones. He was ready for any of them. That's lovely. Well, it might be that this little uh, problem here will move you across to 1 Chronicles and you'll find out that he really did have a brother. You even find out his name. Now, there is a place where it's likely that one word has been dropped from the text. Again, let me say it, not one point of major doctrine is changed because of that word that's been missed out. So don't let someone say, oh, well, you see, it's missed a word out there. The Bible's full of holes. It's not full of holes at all. They, they are really overstating the case. All right, now we come to a passage that's full of difficulties. And we'll be in this passage for some time. This is 2 Samuel and chapter 24. And you may as well put your finger in 1 Chronicles 21 as well, because we can compare these two chapters. 1 Chronicles and chapter 21. Now here you need about three hands and about six fingers on each hand. So if you're a giant, you'll be all right. They would have made wonderful Bible scholars, the giants would. They had six fingers, as you know. Right, verse 1 and verse 2. All right, now David's attitude was wrong, and God is going to judge him for his wrong attitude. 
And in verse 1, And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. Now there in verse 1, it definitely says that the Lord, he moved David against them and told him to go and number Israel. The problem is that in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 1, it doesn't say that God caused David to number Israel, it says that Satan did. And in verse 1 here, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And here you have the problem, was it God or was it Satan? And you know it's lovely, actually it was both. That's what we learn from this. Do you know that very often if God is going to judge someone, he actually uses the devil to do it? Did you know that's the case? God is Lord over every angel, elect and fallen. And very often, say he's judging a particular nation, do you know all he does, he removes his restraining hand from that nation so that Satan is allowed to have full reign in that nation. Who's doing the judgment? God is doing the judgment, but he's using Satan to do it. And here, it's God who actually says, well, I want David to number Israel. And he says, right, uh, where is the spirit that will go for me to do this? And Satan says, oh, I'll do it. All right, off you go. You see, it's God who is the mastermind behind it. Satan then goes and actually causes him to do it. There's no problem here at all. Someone once likened this, you know, to a chap in a blacksmith shop uh, who was uh, using a very heavy hammer to beat metal. And uh, the, the chap was learning, and uh, the master would uh, have a small hammer, right? The learner would have the big hammer, and he would just tap the place where he wanted the learner to hit, right? And so he goes, right there, smash, right there, smash. Who's in charge? Well, the blacksmith's in charge, you see, but the man with the big uh, hammer is the one who's doing the work. And God sometimes does that, and he allows uh, satanic forces to come and to be used in his judgment of a particular individual or of a nation. So there's no problem there. Right, in verse 9, we have a slightly more complicated one. And if you've got a biro or pencil, it's worth writing out these figures. Now let's go to 2 Samuel 24 and verse 9. And Joab, it says, gave up the sum of the number of the people unto the king. There were in Israel, so write the word Israel, there were in Israel... 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. 800,000 in Israel. And the men of Judah were 500,000. Oh, the problem is that the total number given in 1 Chronicles 21 is different. This is a problem, isn't it? Go across to 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 5. And on the same sheet of paper, write these numbers out. You'll find they're different. 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 5. And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and an hundred thousand men. That's one million one hundred thousand. In the other place it said eight hundred thousand. Here it says one million one hundred thousand. There is a discrepancy of three hundred thousand here. And then it goes on to Judah, which in the other place it said was five hundred thousand. Here it says, and Judah was four hundred, threescore, and ten thousand men that drew the sword. Four hundred and seventy thousand men. Now there's a discrepancy there of thirty thousand. 
And so we've got a problem. What is the answer to it? Has someone made a mistake? No, no, it's too big a mistake for them to have actually made. Right? What's the answer to this? The answer is found in verse 9. For in verse 9, it doesn't say anywhere that the total number was 800,000. What it does say is there were 800,000 valiant men. Underline the word valiant. The word valiant meant that they'd already been in battle and they'd already fought against an enemy and they were tried soldiers. Of the total army, 800,000 had already fought the enemy before. 300,000 made up the rest of the number who were new to battling. And that's what we learn from that. And you'll notice in 1 Chronicles 21, in verse 5, it doesn't say there were 1,100,000 valiant men, just 1,100,000 men that drew the sword. And the word valiant makes all the difference there. So that tells us something else. 800,000 tried men, 300,000 were newcomers. Good. Any army has them. No problem in that at all. We learn more details from these apparent contradictions. But what about the next one, right? Uh, 2 Samuel definitely says that the total number in Judah were 500,000 men. 1 Chronicles 21 says this, and Judah was 403 score and 10,000 men that drew the sword. And can we just read verse 6? But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. In 2 Samuel, you get the total number right? In 1 Chronicles, you get the number minus Levi and Benjamin. So it tells us that the number from Levi and Benjamin was 30,000. There's no problem there at all. All right? Do you see the type of thing? With all of these things, it looks like a contradiction. In fact, if you read the text rather carefully, you'll find there's not a contradiction there. The next one, 2 Samuel 24, verse 13. All right, 2 Samuel 24 and verse 13. And David's told off, you know, for numbering Israel. He wanted to do it. God allowed him to do it. But he was wrong to do it. So Gad came to David and told him, and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. So you can have seven years of famine as your judgment. You can have three months running before your enemies. Or you can have three days under pestilence. Which do you want as judgment? If you read then Chronicles, all right, 1 Chronicles 21, you'll find instead of 733, in verse 12, this is what Gad says. At verse 11, so Gad came to David, said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee, either three years' famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord. Which do you want? Now here it's three years of famine, three months ch being chased by your enemies, or three days of pestilence. And do you see the difference there? One says seven years, three months, three days. The other says three years, three months, three days. And actually we can say that from the structure of the Hebrew, it should be three, three, three. Now let's have a look at this problem. I've already told you that the Hebrews used their alphabet to count with. All right, now these are the two verses. Now, the number seven in Hebrew is Zayin. There it is. And you see, it rather looks like it's seven. That's what it looks like. The number three 
is Gimel, which looks like that. And do you see what's happened there, right? Instead of just the normal number seven there, someone has added something, just a little line underneath. And that's the extent of the mistake. Really, out of hundreds of thousands of words, just a little line underneath, you know, has caused the problem. Again, it's one when we get older texts, we'll find this sorted out quite simply. All right, now that just shows you the extent of the error that's been made here. Certainly it should be. Chronicles is right. It should be three, three, and three. All right? You see the type of problem. And by the way, this really is a little error, right? It's a copious error. And do you remember what we said? That the Bible is infallible and inerrant in the original manuscript. That's the thing to underline. All right? Here is a little copious error. There are no great copious errors at all. Just a little mark. All right, let's go on to the next one. Again, in 2 Samuel 24. There are lots in 2 Samuel. You know, loads and loads and loads of them. Let's have a look at this one. In verse 24 and verse 25, and here David comes along, and he wants to buy the threshing floor of Ornan. Right? Or Arauna, as he's called here. And in verse 24, And the king said to Arauna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which hath cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. Fifty shekels. The problem is that in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 25, we have a different price. Right? Verse 25. So David gave to Ornan, and by the way, the two different names there are no problem at all. It's actually the same name. In the, he in the Hebrew, okay? It's only a problem in our Bibles, that's all. So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by weight. Oh dear, oh dear. One, he pays 600 shekels of gold. The other, he pays 50 shekels of silver. Now there's a problem. Or is it a problem? No, it's not a problem. Read it carefully again. In 1 Chronicles 21, he actually gives the total cost of the area he bought from Ornan. The total place cost him 600 shekels of gold by weight. And in that area of land, there was a threshing floor. He paid 50 shekels of silver just for the threshing floor. It's rather like this. Say you had a plot of land, two acres of land to sell, and you've got a house on the plot of land, but you've also got a swimming pool and sauna you might actually say, well, uh, yes, well, give me, uh, you know, £30,000 for this, but I think, you know, as it's got this extra facility, could you add on another £3,000? Right? Well, for the swimming pool and sauna or whatever it is, you gave £3,000. For the total, you gave 30000 or whatever. By the way, I've made that one up. Don't go out to the local estate agents and have a look for it. It's not on the market. All right, so do you see the type of thing? Again, careful reading of the text is what is necessary. All right, the next one now is complex. In 1 Kings chapter 6, you have a problem. So 1 Kings 6, verse 1, and at the same time then find Acts. And chapter 13, and we'll see the problem. And here you'll need the duplicated sheet that I've given out. And those of you who've heard the uh, chronology tapes will recognize the duplicated sheet. Come straight from the chronology series. All right, 1 Kings and chapter 6. Now, I've got one to put on the overhead projector. And before we have a look at these passages, let's just go through this. I'll start there and go through. 
Now, it looks complicated at first. It's a chart of the history of Israel. Now, forget the rest. Just have a look first at the left-hand column. Forget the right altogether. This column on the left here tells you the years of Israel's history between the Exodus and the time that Solomon's temple is finished. I'll just go down through these so that we understand it. All right, the Exodus occurred. Then you have a two-year period, right, in which the spies are sent forth into the land. Two years. From the time that the spies reject God's provision there, you have 45 years then until the land is divided. Do you remember that Caleb said, it's 45 years since I put my foot on Hebron and now I'm claiming it. So two followed by 45 takes you up to the time of the division of the land. Then you have a 20-year period from the division of the land to the first captivity. And during that 20 years, the people of Israel went away from God and became apostates. As a result, God judged them by allowing Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, to come in and to take them over. And for eight years, this king dominated the promised land. Then, of course, they turned back to God, and that king was kicked out. That's a great relief for Bible scholars. You don't have to say that name again. Then you come to the time when Othniel, a, a lovely man, judged Israel, and he kept Israel in godliness for 40 years. Then again they went apostate, and Eglon, king of Moab, took over, and he ruled them for 18 years. Then again they turned back to God, and they were delivered by Ehud, and Shamgar, right? And they judge Israel, and they have 80 years of godliness. What a history this is, by the way. Then they're taken over again. The king of Canaan, Jabin, comes, and for 20 years takes them over. And you'll notice I put the references in so that you can check these for yourselves afterwards. Then Deborah and Barak come along. Good old Deborah, right? The Mrs. Thatcher of the ancient world. And um, <laughs> she comes along, and she uh, judges for 40 years, and they have peace during that 40 years. Then we have seven years in which the Midianites take over, and Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, and Jair judge Israel for 88 years. All right? This saves you a lot of hard work, doesn't it? Aren't I a good, kind Bible teacher to do all this for you? <laughs> then you come to the time when the Philistines take over, and the Philistines and Ammonites take over, and they then take over the land for 18 years. Then Jephthah, Ibzan, Eglon, and Abdon, they are the judges of Israel, and there's peace again for 31 years. Then the Philistines take over, and this is the period in which Samson, that chunky-punky of the ancient world, comes along, and he causes all this trouble. I think in some ways I'm a Samson today, but I'll go into that some other Bible study. Um, and... There it is, the Philistines dominate for 40 years. Then comes Eli, and he judges Israel. Samuel preaches during this time as well, and for 40 years he's the judge. Then for 20 years, the Philistines take over again. Then you get a 10-year period from Israel's victory at Mizpah to the end of Samuel's administration. Then you have Saul's reign for 40 years, David's reign for 40 years, and in the fourth year of the reign of Solomon, the temple starts being built. Now what I've then done is add on another 10 years to the completion of the temple, and that brings us down. 
Now, if you add up all the figures in that left-hand column, it comes to 621 years. Right, now we're ready to go now. Now we see the problem. In 1 Kings chapter 6, you have this statement. 1 Kings 6 and verse 1, and with that chart you can see the problem. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Remember, I've added on ten years to this, right, to the completion of the house of the Lord. So what we could say is, and it came to pass in the 490th year, after the children of Israel were come out of Egypt, in the 14th year of Solomon's reign, the house was complete. Now look, this chart begins at the beginning point, the Exodus. It ends at the end point, and we've worked it out, it's 621 years. And yet this passage says it's 480 plus 10 years. And on the right-hand side, you can see the problem. The total amount of time is said in 1 Kings chapter 6 to be 490 years. Now there is a discrepancy between those two. And it's highlighted in Acts chapter 13, because in Acts chapter 13, in verse 17, you see the figures that I've given again at the top of the chart. Right? Now go to the right-hand side and move in a bit. Now, look what it says, verse 17 of Acts 13. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. So there's the 40-year period. Then it says, verse 19, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot, and we know that took seven years. So there you've got 40 years and seven years. Then, in verse 20, And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And in fact, I've then added on 450 years down to the time of Samuel. Now, can you see, 450 plus 40 and 7 years is 497 years, and yet that doesn't reach down to the bottom of the chart. There is a world of difference between those two figures. Now, we've got a problem. 1 Kings chapter 6 must be wrong. It must be. It's far too short. Or is it wrong? Well, now, this is interesting. Have a look on the right-hand column again. And here, if you're observant, you'll notice that I've done something. I've actually, instead of just listing the uh, years, such as I listed on the left-hand side of the chart, I've actually split the years up. And I would suggest to you that when you get home, you actually take this chart and color in the different figures. I have separated the years when Israel is out of fellowship. Look at what we've done. We get the 2, 45, and 20. Then can you see I've moved the 8 to the other side of the line? Because that's the time when Cushan Rishathaim had taken over Israel. They were out of fellowship in that time. So, 8 years is out. Then the next time they were in captivity, Eglon, king of Moab, took over. That was 18 years. The next time, Jabin, king of Canaan, 20 years. The next time, the Midianites, 7 years. The next time, the Philistines and Ammonites, 18 years. The next time, the Philistines, 40 years. 
and then you get the Philistines again, 20 years. If you add all of those years up, you find, as I put at the bottom, they come to 131 years. And in that period of time, you'll find that Israel was in fellowship for 490 years, out of fellowship for 131, and the total is the same as on the left-hand side of the chart, 621. And in this marvelous passage, we learn something about God, that when people are out of fellowship, he closes his eyes and he blinks, he doesn't count time. Just closes his eyes. Israel, oh yes, Israel, um, yes, their history between this point and this point to God is 490 years. Oh, but it's more. Oh, well, I don't count those years because they were out of fellowship. Isn't that lovely? And this little verse is in here, and it's a very complicated one, to tell us the principle of God cancelling years when you're out of fellowship. And that's why it says he blinks at our iniquities. Blinks at them. And do you know, when you reach heaven, God will say, well, what a wonderful 40 years you've had. But Lord, I'm 68. Well, you're 40 to me, right? But what about the other 28 years? Oh, I'm not going to remember those, right? <laughs> Your iniquities I've separated from you. As far as the east is from the west, what? What 28 years? I've wiped the slate clean. No, the 40 years is what I like to think of. Oh, what wonderful 40 years they were. Isn't that lovely? And you see, you people say, but this is madness. No, it's God's way of counting. Isn't it lovely that he does it? This is a God of love and a God of grace who looks at Israel. Now, this is rather exciting, isn't it? This isn't a problem in the Word of God. This is so mysterious that God's put it in here to cause us to think, you see. Now, the old Bible critic comes along. He's arrogant and he's proud. He knows nothing of the ways of God. And he shoves this in your face. When you give him the answer, you shove the love of God in his face. Hallelujah. This is wonderful. Do you know, I view the Christian life rather like an airline pilot. Do you know that an airline pilot has to be in the air for a certain number of hours before he gains his wings, right? And then the longer he's spent in the air, the higher he goes in the esteem of his firm. Well, every time we're in fellowship, we're flying in the air as far as God's concerned, right? He might say, come in, Commander Mason, come in, Commander Mason, right? Or uh, Lieutenant so-and-so and so-and-so. He knows how many hours we've spent in fellowship with him. The rest, when we've been out of fellowship, well, he knows about it, but he closes his eyes to it and puts it on one side. Isn't that good news? What a lot we learn from 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. It's a great verse, isn't it? If you ever want to comfort yourself, you just read this. This is official, folks. Can I read it again? The total period of time was 621 years, but not according to God's reckoning. It came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Isn't that marvellous? There we are, 480 years, and that's official, says God. Wonderful. And if you want to know more about this principle, get the chronology tapes, because it's one of the most important principles of chronology in the Bible. Right, another problem. You're not tired of all these problems. Surely it's nice to have them listed. I'm sorry if this is a bit like a list, but I've never actually heard a talk given on all these problem passages other than my own. Uh, 2 Chronicles 4... And chapter 2. Now, if you're non-mathematical, you can have a few minutes going to sleep at this point. Right? Don't try this. Don't try it. It's too difficult. If you're slightly mathematical, however, you might understand. And this is an interesting one. Did you know, by the way, that if uh, you draw a circle, this is 
a bit of geometry for you now, right? If you draw a circle and you can tell what the diameter is, you can work out how large the circumference is. Did you know that? There's a little mathematical formula which uh, they haven't got for the video, but which I've got on the sheet that I've messed about with, right? And here is the little formula. It's not very well expressed. It's diameter times pi. Does this bring back your school days, right? Diameter times pi equals circumference. Isn't that nice, right? So if you give the diameter and you multiply it by pi, right, you will actually arrive at the circumference. All right, well, what's that got to do with the Bible? Well, quite a lot in this particular passage. Here you get the instructions God gave for making the laver. Do you know what a laver was? It was a large circular dish, and water used to flow from the top bowl down to the bottom, right? It, it always had water pouring over the edges. The Jews liked to wash in moving water. You know, they considered that that was very healthy, and... Uh, they had no water shortage, obviously. And they used to wash their hands as this water came over the rim of the laver. And there it was, and they used to wash like that, do you see? And here's how you make it. Now look what it says, verse 2. Also, he made a molten sea, that's the laver here, of 10 cubits from brim to brim. Well, isn't that wonderful? Now, 10 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches. So we have here, actually... Uh, a laver of 180 inches across. Now, there it is. 180 inches across. Lovely. And by the way, if you multiply that by pi, and pi is 3.141592, on and on and on and on it goes. If you multiply that by pi, you'll find that the circumference of that particular circle is 565 0.486 inches, right? Sorry, this isn't in meters, all right? So we come to a circumference using that formula of 565 inches approximately. The problem is, when you read on in the Bible, that's not the circumference that's given in the Bible. <clears throat> and a mathematician looking at this would say, oh, I see, God can't work out simple mathematics. Oh, dear. Look what it says. I'll read it again, verse 2. Also, he made a laver of 10 cubits from brim to brim, round in compass, and 5 cubits, the height thereof, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it around. Round about, that's the circumference. 30 cubits is 30 times 18, which comes to 540 inches. Oh, dear. 540. We've got 565. It's 25 inches out, and that's an awful lot, isn't it? Right? It really is. You order a certain amount of material and they've blocked off 25 inches. You really know it. Oh dear, oh dear. Mistake in the Bible. Has to be a mistake in this Bible. Can't work it out. Dear, oh dear. Oh, is it? No, it's not a mistake. It's rather wonderful, actually. Let's just read on. Here's the pattern and this is how to make it. Verse 3. And under it was the similitude of oxen, which did compass it about 10 in a cubit, compassing the sea round about. Two rows of oxen were cast when it was cast. It stood upon twelve oxen, three looking towards the north, three looking towards the west, three looking towards the south, three looking towards the east, and the sea was set above upon them, and all their hinder parts were inward. This is the basic design of the labor. And the thickness of it was an handbreadth. Now that's the key. 
the thickness of this thing was a handbreadth. Now listen, a handbreadth is four inches. So what do we know? We know this is the outer measurement, but then you've got to measure in four inches from either side to get the inward measurement. Let's have a look at another diagram, and you'll see what I mean. All right? This is the plan that we've got. Do you see that? We've got the outer circle, then you have to move in four inches from either side. And as a result, you get an inner diameter of 180 minus 4 minus 4, the two rims on either side. So you get an inner diameter of 172 inches. And guess what? Applying the formula and multiplying 172 inches by pi, you get 540. Isn't that nice? Which is exactly what verse 2 says it ought to be. In fact, it works out, well, I've, I've worked it out very accurately. It's, you know, 0.3 or something on the end. You know, 540 uh, 0.3 inches, you see? Well, that's quite natty, isn't it? If you're a mathematician at this point, you're praising the Lord. If you're not, well, okay, come back to that some other time. Right, pi, what type of ice? Taking kidney pie? What? What's this about? All right, good. It's rather remarkable, that, do you see? Okay, let's go on to another one. Let's go to Daniel, all right? And chapter 1, Daniel, chapter 1, you know, I'm trying to deal with general categories of things here. Fortunately, uh, the problem I've just dealt with is one that the unbeliever generally doesn't know. Isn't that convenient? Praise the Lord, because he could really cause uh, Christians a few problems with that. All right, Daniel 1 and verse 1, and at the same time find Jeremiah 25, verse 1. Jeremiah 25 and verse 1. And here you've got a discrepancy. Daniel 1, 1, all right? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And here he's king, and it's the third year of Jehoiakim. Lovely. Well, no problem, except in Jeremiah 25, it doesn't say it's his third year. It says it's his fourth year. In verse 1, And the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Do you see that? Now here you've got this king, Jehoiakim. Daniel says it's the third year of Jehoiakim. Jeremiah says it's the fourth year of Jehoiakim. How do you explain it? Actually, it's quite simple. Judah used to count their kings like this. The first year of a king's reign wasn't counted. It was called his accession year. So he had an accession year, then you started counting the years, right? So in Daniel 1, you have this. The accession year, 1, 2, 3, and in the third year, that's when it happened. In Jeremiah, they use the other form of counting, where they don't uh, have an accession year, they start counting immediately. And that was 1, 2, 3, 4. Easy as that. By the way, our queen, you have trouble working out her dates, you know. You really do. The king, King George V, died when? March 52, wasn't it? When was she crowned? June 53. Well, how many years has she been on the throne yet? Oh, well, it depends. Where do you count it from? Do you see? And you might, working it out, find that one person says, oh, it's X number of years. Another says it's X plus one number of years. Well, it depends how you're counting. And that's the answer to that little one. So there's no problem. All right, let's go through, shall we, to the New Testament now. And here we come into different types of problems 
again. All right, and there's some really lovely problems in these. By the way, sometimes if you're reading the Gospels, you come across certain things that make you ponder, which aren't quite contradictions. For example, uh, in John's Gospel, it says that Jesus uh, cleansed the temple and cast out the moneylenders in the first year of his ministry. In the other Gospels, it's definitely in the third year of his ministry. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. He did it twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry, once at the end of his ministry. There's no problem there. Um, when you speak about the incident of the Gadara swine, do you remember this, where you had the demoniac, and Jesus cast out the demons into a pig? One gospel says there were two demoniacs there. The other says it's one. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. There were two there, but one of them just concentrates on the one out of whom the demons went. There's no problem there, you see. I mean, uh, we could uh, do that. We do the same frequently. You go to a prayer meeting, you see, and there are five people there. You get home, and they say, who was there? Oh, so-and-so and so-and-so was there, and you name two. You're not suggesting they're the only people at the prayer meeting. It's the two you are interested in and the two you want to talk about, you see? So there's no problem over that type of thing. All right, let's, uh, let's just have a look at this then. In verse 9 of Matthew chapter 10, verse 9 of Matthew chapter 10, here it says, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses, nor scrip for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his meat. So don't have gold or silver or brass in your purses, no scrip for your journey, right? No purse at all to hold the money, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves. Yet unfortunately, in Mark's Gospel, now let's read it, in Mark 6, 8. In Mark 6, 8, look at this, oh dear, oh dear. He began sending them out two by two, gave them power over unclean spirits. This is Mark 6, verse 8. And commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only. Oh, no script, no bread, no money in their purse. One tells them they mustn't take any staffs. The other tells them they can take a staff. What's the answer to that? Well, Mark 6 definitely says they can take a staff. In Matthew 10, it's talking about buying things in. The word provide here is the word buy in verse 9. Buy. Don't go out of your way to provide these things. Neither gold, silver, nor staves. Don't buy spare staffs. That's what he's saying, you see. But you can take your own staff. But don't go out of your way and buy any new staff. There's no contradiction between these two. All right? Uh, another one, Matthew 13. This is a nasty one. Now, this is one that I have heard used occasionally. Right? Perhaps you have. Right? A clever botanist comes along and you're preaching the gospel. Oh, I can't believe the Bible. It's full of holes. Oh, show me one. Well, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 13, verse 32, for a start, he says. He can't go on, but that's where he starts and ends. Here it is. David Bellamy strikes again. Verse 31. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, and so it goes on. Now he says, now this definitely says that the mustard seed is the least of all seeds. But he says that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seeds. Rue and poppy are smaller for a start, he says. So the Bible's got it wrong, says it's the least. 
Actually, it's not. Do you know the Bible here in the Greek says that it's one of the smallest. That's what it says. It's one of the smallest. It doesn't claim to be the smallest, but it belongs to the smaller seeds that there are. Fine, there's a quick one, and that's easy. This next one is a very interesting little one indeed. All right, and we have problems with it. Again, two passages. Let's go on to Mark's Gospel. Mark 10. We're nearly at the end now. I think I've got about another three to get through, so we've all done very well, right? In Mark chapter 10, and also find Luke 18, and this, if you haven't noticed it, is one of the greatest problems in the New Testament. Luke 18, verse 35. Right, let's read the Mark 10 one first. Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. Now there is a statement that Jesus and his disciples were coming out of Jericho and he meets blind Bartimaeus and heals him. The problem is that Luke 18, verse 35, says that blind Bartimaeus was healed when he went into Jericho. Isn't that a problem? Verse 35, And it came to pass that as he was come nigh unto Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And so it goes on. Now here you've got a major problem. You see, one says Jesus is leaving Jericho, and he heals blind Bartimaeus. The other says he's going into Jericho, and he heals him. Well, you can't do both. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Praise the Lord for ignorant non-Christians. Right? What would you do if someone confronted you with this? It is a problem. Well, as I was going into Chichester, I filled up my car with petrol. And then I said to someone else, well, I was just coming out of Chichester, and I had to fill up my car with petrol. Well, he said, well, you don't know whether you're coming or going. I mean, which way were you heading? And it's so interesting because actually an archaeologist saw these two and he said, now, Lord, he said, I believe that your word is inerrant. I believe it. And he said, now I've got a problem. And after prayer, he began to find out what the answer to this problem was. And he drew it out. Now, imagine this is Jericho, right? Here is blind Bartimaeus sitting there, right? He said, now one gospel says the blind Bartimaeus is healed as Jesus comes out of Jericho. He says, but another says that it's as he went into Jericho that it happened. So he said, well, that's obvious. There has to be another Jericho. And he said, Lord, could it be that there were two Jerichos side by side and the blind Bartimaeus was sitting between the two? Is that possible? Oh, no, it's not possible, is it? And he went to Israel and he went to Jericho and he started working it out. Do you know what he did? He worked out the direction where the other Jericho would be. And when he started digging, he found the other Jericho. And he not only found the other Jericho, they were side by side, but he found the history of this other Jericho. And do you know what had happened? The old Jericho was there, and it was crammed with buildings, and King Herod had come along, and he wanted to start a new regional center at Jericho. But the town was so crammed, there was no room for it. So do you know what he did? He decided to establish a brand new Jericho by the side of the old Jericho. And in the time of Jesus, there were two Jerichos side by side. And by the way, where would a beggar sit? He'd sit where the people were traveling to go to the other half of the town. And what then happened is the new Jericho took over and the other one fell away and became decayed. 
And it was through this apparent contradiction in the Bible that they discovered the archaeology of Jericho. Now, isn't it a wonderful story? So was Jesus coming in or going out? The answer was he was doing both. He was leaving one half of Jericho, going into the other half of Jericho, and so it goes on. All right, the last two then, right? Matthew 27, verse 9 and verse 10. And this is an important one, but quite easy. Verse 9, we have here a quotation from the Old Testament. And you remember the chief priests take the silver pieces that Judas gives them back. And in verse 9, then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Now, there it is, a quotation, and they say Jeremiah the prophet gave the quotation. The problem is, you can search Jeremiah from beginning to end, you will never find this quotation. The quotation is actually from the prophet Zechariah. Oh dear, oh dear. Zechariah 11, verse 13 is the quotation. And here, apparently, you've got the New Testament, the Gospels, actually saying that Jeremiah said it, and Jeremiah didn't. It was Zechariah. What's the answer to that one, Jim? Right? Very important, this. I mean, apparently, the New Testament authors... Oh, sorry, slip of the mind. But the Bible doesn't contain slips of the mind. It's written by the Holy Ghost. How is this possible? Well, here, the answer is, again, very simple. Very often, the Jews used to put all of the Old Testament onto just five big scrolls, right? They had the law on one scroll. They had the prophets on two others. They had the writings on three others, and so on, you see? And these five scrolls were carried around wherever they were needed. Now, the scroll was always called by the first book on the scroll. So you used to have the Genesis scroll for example, and on the Genesis scroll was Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sorry, right? Then on the Joshua scroll, you'd have Joshua, Judges, and so it would go up. Now, it's interesting because the prophet Zechariah was on the prophet Jeremiah scroll. Praise the Lord. And all the writer is saying here is, if you want to check out where this comes from, you'll find it on the prophet Jeremiah scroll. As the prophet Jeremiah says, and if you open the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, you'll come to the prophecy of Zechariah, and that's where I'm quoting from. Now, isn't that interesting? Praise the Lord. There's the answer to a very difficult little question. All right, but to end tonight, and may I say, this isn't exhaustive. It may have been exhausting, but it's not exhaustive. I'm going to end with the death of Judas, right? So, could we stay in Matthew 27, Right, and in verse 5, we read this about Judas. Judas realizes he's betrayed innocent blood, and he decides to commit suicide. Isn't it tragic, by the way? He committed suicide before he gave his heart to Christ, and before he knew about the resurrection. Isn't that tragic? If only he'd waited, he might have found Jesus risen from the dead, and might have been converted. Such is the agony of suicide here, you see. Verse 5, and Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Well, he hanged himself. The problem is that Acts chapter 1 says that he didn't hang himself. In Acts chapter 1, verse 18, we have a marvelous description. I love these descriptions, you know. And the sword went in so that his belly swallowed up even the hilt. Isn't that lovely, you know, when you get these descriptions in the book of 
judges. Thrilling. Verse 18. Slight weight problem there. Now in Acts 1, verse 18, look at this. Talking about Judas. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst, and all his bowels gushed out. <laughs> See why I married a doctor, don't you? I sit reading her medical magazines over breakfast. It's thrilling. You see? And fell headlong, and his bowels burst asunder, and they all gushed out everywhere. Now listen, how did he die? Did he die by hanging himself, or did he fall headlong and burst asunder, and his bowels gushed out? Which way? Well, it's a problem. But actually, you know, this is rather like this. Imagine a man in New York who's standing on the ledge of a building, right? He's threatening to throw himself off, and he pulls out a gun, and he shoots himself right through the head. Now, he shoots himself through the head, and what happens? He then falls off the window ledge and goes down and hits the floor splat. Now, one newspaper might say, a man died today, you know, he fell off the windowsill of this tower block. Another would say, a man shot himself while standing on the 18th floor. Which happened? Both happened. You see? It depends which aspect you're talking about. And do you know what happened? Here is Judas. He came along. He hanged himself on a particular tree. And we don't know quite what happened. Either the branch broke or his neck slipped out of the noose. But having hanged himself, he then fell to the ground and his bowels gushed out all over the floor. It's a rather lurid detail here. right? This video will be in glorious technicolor. And so will the tape. You see, now, can you see, here you have two apparently contradictory statements. In fact, there is no contradiction between them. Both of those things actually happened. All right, now we've been through all of these. I'm sorry if we've had to do an awful lot of work in this session, but I felt I wanted to go through these things to show you the type of contradictions that there are. Do you see, most of these contradictions only end up serving to glorify God. And God, I believe, has allowed difficulties in this world. Do you know why? Because it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. But it's the glory of kings to search out that matter. May we be of such royal lineage that we will go to the word of God and we will seek out these matters. Praise the Lord. All right, next time I'm speaking on how to study the Bible for yourself. And after that, we're coming on to all sorts of interesting things in dispensations and divine institutions, and so on. Let's pray before we depart tonight. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Praise your wonderful name, Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, praise you, praise you, praise you. Father, I do thank you so much, Lord, for the ability tonight to be able to speak on many of these apparent contradictions in the Word of God. Father, we thank you with them all, Father, that either... All that's missing is one little letter. Or, Father, there is perhaps uh, an accurate statement that we've overlooked. Or, as is in most of the cases, it's the glory of the Lord which has concealed deep and wonderful truths. Father, I do thank you for the wonderful things that are recovered when we come in faith to your word and examine it in faith. I ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you will bless all the hearers of this tape, and Father, I'm asking also, Lord, that Father, we might find other glories in the Word as we continue our researches ourselves. Oh, Father, please, in Jesus' name, just come and bless us and bless all of those who are here.
Father, who've come for the Word of God. Thank you for the hunger that there is concerning your Word. And Father, may there be great blessing in their homes, on their journey home, and so on. Father, just bless us until we meet again. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God. Amen.